everyone, I'm Caitlin from Follow the Camino, and today we're joined on our Camino Talks by Susie from Susie's Auberge. Casa Susie? Yes, Casa Susie will do. Casa Susie, there you go. Um, and Susie has a bit of an interesting story of how she ended up owning a Auberge on the Camino, um, because you're not from Spain, are you, Susie? No, I'm definitely not from Spain. So born in London, uh, but most of my life was in Australia. And I was very happy in Australia doing what I was doing until I walked the Camino. <laughs> so it's a bit of a life-changing experience for you. Um, now, yeah. let's start from the beginning. So tell us about your first Camino. What inspired you to walk the Camino? Where did, where did your, your little happy life in Australia suddenly turn into a, a pilgrimage? Uh, so first of all, I read a book in 2007 uh, called The Year We Seize the Day. Um, I was a big traveller, loved travelling, but um, sort of luxury travel was really my thing to do. So I had never backpacked, uh, never communal stayed or shared a bathroom, um, certainly hadn't carried a bag and hadn't walked very far other than unless I was going to the beach. So read this book uh, on my way to Paris and thought, amazing why would anybody walk across a country? Uh, it, the book was, you know, it, it was really bad in terms of um, telling you what the honest truth is about the Camino. I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong with these two people. Um, um, and it was amazing, but it was something I never, ever wanted to do. So read the book, put it away. Um, and much later, uh, an ex-boyfriend read the book and decided to do the pilgrimage when I was a bit put off really you know I was a bit well actually this is my book maybe this is my journey maybe not but anyway suddenly somebody else is doing something maybe you need to do that too anyway cut a very long story short he did it and uh yes it was my journey that I actually needed to eventually go on so in 2011 uh, I decided it was something uh, that I wanted to do but I owned a flower shop Job. So I had a busy life and very happy in Sydney. So uh, I really wanted, I didn't want to rush it. Uh, at the time there, was, there weren't apps, there, there was, you know, John Briley, the Bible guidebook of the Camino, but there really wasn't many guidebooks. You, I didn't know people that had done it. And in fact, uh, my local priest in the Catholic Church had done the Camino a few times when my daughter had gone to school, but I wasn't involved in the church. So I didn't, you know, know all of those things. So I didn't have anybody to ask. I couldn't get the information. So it was a bit of the unknown. Um, is that a good thing? Yeah, probably. So I only had this book as my guide, these references as a book, the one that you don't want to do anything. Um, and I did get the St. James Confraternity book, um, which has no pictures, has no maps, basically just tells you what's in a village. And so I've got, you know, some written texts and, uh, so I wanted to just leave it that how long it was going to be, it was going to be. So I planned three months, but that was coming from Australia to England to Europe. So in amongst that, I was going to take six weeks to walk a Camino. Um, I eventually got on to the path. Uh, there was a bit of, you know, pushing and shoving and what am I doing this for? And, and lots of tears um, before I started. So I uh, got to Pamplona but I was starting in St. Jean, Peter Paul. So I had to get there. So I had a private transfer, but I had two days in Pamplona to settle myself, uh, where I found myself sitting in the middle of the square crying um, about what I was undertaking. I mean, it's not really me. I mean, I'm a good traveler on my own, but not this sort of travel. And I called my daughter uh, and uh, cried down the phone. And she said, okay, how bad can this be? When you start, how far do you have to walk before you could actually leave? Three days, you know, I planned, I thought St. Jean back to Pamplona would get me um, on a bus or a plane to a beach and a cocktail possibly. And she said, okay, so the worst it's gonna be is three days, you can do this. And it's like, yeah, maybe. And she said, just, and just one word, um, all your friends here having bets on how soon you'll leave. Well, that was, <laughs> The, the encouragement I needed. Up I was, I'm going to do this. And so, uh, yeah, I got to St. Jean and uh, I didn't sleep and uh, I did the first stage. So I walked from St. Jean to Roncesvalles. Um, but what I'd done, I, I didn't check in to the Albergi. I um, had booked the nice hotel. 
And this was uh, just in case it didn't go as planned and I was probably weeping by the end of the first stage and I thought nobody would know. I owe nothing to anybody. This is my journey, so I'm, I'm free to leave. Um, but I upped and over the mountain. I didn't cry. It was incredible. Um, and I was actually quite sad to be going to that really nice hotel when everybody I'd met that day was going off to the monastery to say so. That was day one, 2012, the end of May. And I made it to uh, Santiago in 32 days uh, with a few days of rest. It was horrific. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to anybody. I was leaving for 26 days, 26 days, morning and night, I said, yeah, this is it. I'm, I'm gonna go to the bus stop when everybody, when I get to the village first, I'm just gonna go to the bus stop and I'll just be gone. And then people would come, yeah, I'd, have, I'd have a beer before I went to the bus stop and then the first people would come and then I'd, I'd check into that old burg and then it's okay, I'll leave in the morning. When everybody gets up, I just won't get up with anybody. And uh, well, needless to say, every day I did get up. I had really bad blisters and I think that was my greatest struggle. Um, and, but it wasn't, it is your feet that gets you to Santiago. But what carried me was the people I met. The, the friends I made along the way that just got me there every day. It was them that kept me going to bed at night and up in the morning. And yeah, I cried. I wept with my feet. And I still, I'm really unsure why I didn't just go to a store and buy a new pair of shoes. But I didn't. I continued trying to wear these you know, these really amazing hiking, but that didn't work for me. And it wasn't that I'd have worn them in because I had worn them. But at the end of the day, when you were walk 900 kilometers across a country, no pair of shoes, you cannot wear them in that well unless they're an old pair of shoes. You know, so look, some people have a lot of luck. I didn't have a lot of luck. And uh, I now know where the song Walking on Broken Glass comes from because that's what my feet felt like. Oh, um, I finished the Camino and uh, it was incredible and I didn't want it to, to end. I then walked on to Museum Finisterre, which I didn't think I was going to do, but there is this, once it's in you, it's in you. But, you know, I had walked and talked to a lot of people along the way and people said, this is my third time, this is my sixth, and I was thinking, yeah, well, once you've done it, once you've done it, that's amazing. No, I was one of those. So in the September... When I should have been back in Australia running my business, I went on my second Camino. So, yeah, within months I was back doing it again. And it was really because um, the journey was so incredible. The people that knew me, uh, I, I didn't go back to Australia. I, I did stay in Europe and I spent a lot of time with my family. And people were saying I was different. And I liked her. I liked the woman I'd become. And I didn't want to lose it. And the only way I thought I could keep that was to go and walk it again. It was everything I felt true. Was it this incredible journey that had changed me into a, into a better person? The people that I met, were they as kind and generous as I thought they were, even though maybe we didn't speak the same language? And so I wanted to come and do it again. Um, and I did the same route. I walked the Camino Frances again. And... Uh, you know, a few months different, the scenery had changed because of nature and the season had changed. Needless to say, the people had changed as well. Um, I had a few special albergues that I wanted to go back to, but there was a few, you know, villages that were still in my mind. I thought, yeah, I'd really like to go back and see that one. And so, um, yeah, changed it up. I walked with incredible people. So my first journey was with two older English ramblers they I walked from with them from the very beginning to the very end every single day so though we didn't walk every day we just met at the end of every day and then we hung out um, we got up in the morning and uh, we I was the first one to the village and that's when I'd be waiting for them with that cold beer uh, and my second journey was with a much younger group um, down to a you know 17 year old girl walking on five euros a day to um, a guy, you know, was in his 30s and um, had a black American Express card. So I walked with, you know, a different group of people and different ranges of um, culture, uh, skills, um, history of their life, 
as well, or, or life skills as well, um, old and young. And so, yeah, it was a completely different journey. But once again, it was incredible. Um, and then by May 2013, I was walking the Norte. So within a year, I was on my third Camino. That's that's commitment right there. You you caught the bug straight away, and and you got it. You got it fully. <laughs> yeah, and I was lucky. I mean, I was able to to hang around in Europe, not obviously until the following May when I finished my second commune. I did go back to Australia and take all those wonderful things I'd learned back with me of kindness and generosity of spirit, with wanting nothing in return. Um, and yeah, and um, culling my wardrobe was one of my biggest things. What, I don't need this. I just need what's in my backpack. <laughs> my daughter was very um, unhappy. I didn't want to go shopping anymore. But we don't need possessions. We just need what's on our back. So, um, so I was lucky. I mean, not everybody is privileged to have the time to be able to do that. And a lot of people are in a hurry. And and I think it's lovely if you can do it and it's be endless. But we totally understand if people, yeah, I've only got a month and I've got to get it in and you have to get a bus and and you want to enjoy the moments and and that's also you know okay too it's just I yeah I was privileged amazing yeah we we talk to a lot of a lot of people about you know what type of Camino they want to do and I think so many people would absolutely love to do a full month or more than a month six, six weeks seven weeks even um yeah. and they'd love to do the full french way plus finisterra or they'd love to do the whole portuguese way and then a piece of another thing um but obviously time real life exists somewhere out there that we have to get back to um and that's why a lot of people end up just walking the last hundred kilometers or or just some people will do one sort of section every year and they'll make it to Santiago over five years or four years uh, which is also absolutely fine because as you said it's it's everyone's different journey and and you're going to find different amazing people and experiences no matter which piece you do or when or where. Yes absolutely and I think even if you get that small taste of it it could encourage you to want to do more to do longer you know some people I don't think I can walk the whole thing so I'm I'm just going to do a hundred or, you know, a lot of people, we live really close to the Alba, is really close to Osobrero. So that's um, the 160 kilometer, but it's a hundred mile mark. So a lot of the Americans, the English people want to do the hundred miles, not necessarily the kilometers. So uh, that's another good place to start. But yeah, and, and people, I mean, message me all the time. If I'm just doing a section and I've only got time for a section, which is a big section to do, but they're all amazing for different reasons yeah so what do you tell people when someone asks you know i've only got two weeks what's your favorite section um look uh well from here from uh, trabadello <laughs> which is near pomfrata so we're 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 on 176 kilometer mark so um from astorga to santiago would be a, a two week if you want to get to santiago i mean not everybody wants to get to Santiago necessarily, you know, not everybody needs to get to the end of the journey, which is not the end of the journey, it's just the beginning. So, um, but some people really want to get to Santiago and really want to get their Compostela's and other people just want an experience of something. So I suppose from, from a store girl, look, I think from St. Jean-Pierre de Port, um, walking to Burgos, that's one amazing section. And then you get the section from Astorga to Santiago, which brings in, you know, two regions. So you've got Leon and then you've got Galicia. Um, it changes so much, like the very beginning, you start in France and you end, you know, somewhere in Spain. But then why would you miss the Meseta, which I think you need that processing of doing that because I love the Meseta as well. So, um yeah, the, the Francais for that, and I, I think for the first journey, the Francais is so well set up. Um, the other the other routes now are, are getting better and better. Uh, the infrastructure is amazing. But when I first did it, you know, the, the Francais was set up really well. You never had to walk really big distances. Every village had something you needed. Um, okay, there's, you know, what's the worst? 17 kilometres of nothing. Well, that's incredible, that nothingness. But that was the worst. Whereas when, you know, the Norte, there was days I had to walk 30 Ks. Um, if you walk the Via de la Plata, you've got to walk a day of 40. 
um, the Primitivo, you know, that's also got big sections of nothing, no cafe. One day, if you don't do the extra Ks, you've got to carry food so that you can cook in the Olberg. So I think the Francais is amazing, but the other Caminos uh, have come a long way in the last couple of years as well because it's been so busy and people are setting up in random places. Yeah, well, we we have loads and loads of people who walk the Portuguese now, especially the last sort of from, from sort of Porto up to um, up to Santiago, because that now has more and more spots to stay and cafes and the extra places where you can go buy new boots if you need them. Yeah. <laughs> All of those have started popping up, especially across Portugal. So we're, we're definitely seeing a lot more people going, you know, the first one we'll do the Francis. It's the classic. It's what everyone talks about. It's got so many resources, so many books about it. Um, but then they come back the next year and they go, that was amazing. Maybe I'll do a different route. And that's when they go, what about the Portuguese? Like that's a different culture. Right. You have, you start in one country, you end in a different country. That alone is, is a very cool thing to do. So yeah, I think we're, we're definitely seeing more, more and more people kind of being interested in the other routes as they do develop. Absolutely. And the Portuguese, I mean, the coastal route, I walked, I walked from uh, Lisbon and I did the central, the original route. In fact, the, at the time, the, the coastal wasn't really well set up. Um, people were going over to the coast and coming back. But I think of the routes, you know, that's a, a pretty good, the coastal there, I think is much easier to access as on the north of Spain, on the Norte. I think it's a, it's a better one. And the Portuguese has just come on leaps and bounds. Um, and like you say, it's, it's different. The culture's different when you start and then it ends different because then you end up in Spain and the language and the food and all of those things is amazing. So, and that's, I think that one for the two weeks is a really good thing from Porto, such a beautiful city to start in. And it's, it's also a great place to fly into for people as well. A lot of the people who come in from the UK and Ireland, there's so many direct flights um, straight into Porto. It's nice and easy. It's a big city. It's got all of the all of the stuff you need to start from, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So so that was that was your first sort of <laughs> I want to say foray, but it was a full on dive into the Camino. Um, and then some time passes and you you now own and run. Uh, a Camino hostel that's such a huge how did that happen <laughs> well, well it actually came really quickly um apparently uh, people that I walked with on my first journey um that I'm still in contact with have said you were talking about this you know then I'm like no no I wasn't I had a lovely flower shop in Sydney and they said no, you would say, and I thought I had an old burger. Yeah, everybody says that because there are a lot of people where everybody walks. I thought I had an old burger. How would I do it? So by the time I was on the Norte, um, I thought, actually, I can do this. I was a florist for nearly 30 years. I absolutely love my profession. It was the only thing I'd ever done. Um, and and I was good at it and, and I was very passionate about it. But what I realised is that I was very passionate about the Camino um, I was learning, you know, whatever I could find online, I was reading about um, if there was uh, somebody that I knew of somebody that had done it or stand in contact with my Camino friends, I was, I was feeding on that. And that's what I'd been like when I learned floristry, but suddenly I'm like, in, okay, well, I like cooking and I'm okay at it. Um, I love people. Um, I love the Camino, love Spain. Well, I could have an alberghi. Why couldn't I? I could do that. And so, in fact, when I was walking the Norte, I put my shop online uh, to sell it um, on Gumtree, which is a really basic price to put a flower shop for sale. But I, I just thought, oh, let's just see what happens. Um, and in fact, my staff called me and said, uh, is there something you need to tell us? And I'm like, what? And they go, oh, well, we've uh, there's a few people inquiring about a business for sale. It's like oh okay I didn't think anything would happen that quick so in actual fact I pretty much had sold it while I was walking <laughs> so wow. um somebody was interested and they viewed it I wasn't there so this at this point I was 
away from May through until September in Europe. So I walked um, the Norte and I walked, uh, I walked again the Frances um, and then I did uh, another small section of the Frances uh, in between that as well. And so I went back to Australia. This uh, person wanted to buy the shop and by the December I'd sold it. And so I was then, you obviously can gather, I don't think too much. I don't have a lot of plans. I just start and I just go with it. Uh, and I don't know Spanish would be another big one that you could put in there, but that's okay. You know, each to their own, you know, got to jump in feet first and see what happens. So this is the only bit of plan I had. I was going to store my furniture and my belongings in Australia for two years and I was going to come back to Europe. So I sort of had a, a beginning and an end to what I was doing. Um, I didn't want to rush it. I was hoping I would find something very quickly, but I didn't know. I didn't know how that was going to pan out. So I put everything in storage and by March of 2014, I was back in Europe. So I sort of based myself with my parents, but I then walked from La Puy in France. Um, and, I, and then I realized that actually, yes, I was very much learning the trade of an albergue. It was more about what do I want when I arrive? What do I like or what don't I like? What would I do different or what would I do the same? And so all these things, I was you know, making a mental note of what I did want and didn't want. I then walked the Portuguese. And I also was probably looking at walking in those uh, areas and those other Caminos in case that's where I wanted to live. But Spain always brought me back. So I did a lot of searching online. Um, I found a really lovely, he wasn't a good real estate agent, but a lovely man in Santiago, a terrible real estate agent, took me five Ks off the Camino and showed me places. This is amazing. It's like, it's five Ks away. Wow, they'll come. It's like, no. If it's if you cannot see it and it says it's 10 metres, we won't walk to it. But he hadn't done the Camino. He didn't understand. And so I did a lot of searching, but really the only way well, for me personally to find somewhere, I was looking for my home. And so I needed to find my home, but something that I could make become what I wanted it to become. So I had in my head that I wanted 12 beds. I didn't want any more. Um, I then was a hospitalero for a few times. And that was also to make sure this is what I really wanted to do. Because of course, uh, as I said before, my journey was about the people I met. That it was incredible. Now what happens if suddenly I open an albergue and actually what I want to do is walk with the people well that wasn't going to work so I had to be a hospitalero to see if I still had the same feelings did I still get the same connections with people and on that first morning at six o'clock when I was saying goodbye and I'd only arrived at five o'clock the night before and I was crying saying goodbye to people I thought okay I've still got it and I'm still in contact with yeah a lot of those people as well so um I was very lucky i did really know it was really what I wanted to do but then I'm still looking for something um, and on month 20 so it took me 20 months so I was on my last walk back to Santiago um, I was back to Santiago back to London and back to Australia in time for Christmas um, I found a house and uh, it was just obviously where I needed it to be I mean I didn't you know, where I'd wanted, I thought I wanted it to be when I went back to look in those places. And I looked and I thought, actually, this is not where I want to live alone in winter. You know, I love the Meseta. But those towns are pretty abandoned, a lot of tumbleweed blowing down there in the middle of winter, and not a lot of warmth and charm. Did I want to be there in winter? No. I mean, I wanted to be there for pilgrims in summer. Um, so, what I ended up looking for, I mean, I had a sort of list and in the end the checklist went out the window and I thought I'm just going to find what I want to find. And I found a house which, um, it was an old barn downstairs. So the animals lived downstairs, which used to heat the house in winter. And then the upstairs was a three bedroom house, which was really very, very basic. Um, but it had running water, one point. And it had electricity, two points. <laughs> I'm going really well right now. Um, it was a good start and it was livable because some of the places I'd seen, I couldn't live in. Uh, I was coming here alone. Um, I was going to possibly have to do a lot of 
of the work alone. So I needed to be living on the premises so that I could do everything. I didn't have a plan about how it would be. I knew that would come as I started the work. And so saw the house in the September, came back and viewed it in the October with my parents. Uh, they were plan B, because if it didn't work and they had agreed to say, yes, okay, this looks good. Um, I could probably go back and live with them if necessary, because then I could say, well, you said actually. Anyway, uh, so I saw it in the October, was in Australia in the December, and I got an email to say, you own a home in Spain. And so I came back in the uh, January and uh, started work. So that was January of 2016 that I actually moved here permanently. Um, and I turned an old barn into a 12-bedded Alberti. Amazing. I opened, wow. in, um, I opened in April 2017. Okay, so it took a little while to get all the renovations and things done. Yeah, and, and licenses and all the things that come with, you know, starting anything and, and not knowing a language um, and the barriers that you come up against. I mean, that's, you know, they're a whole other story, but... Um, you know, I had help along the way um, of people that I'd met along the way as well that came and assisted me and did translations and um, were there and supporting me. They, I mean, there were lots of tears, but, um, and in fact, when it was time to open, because I'd, I'd been living here over a year then, when it was time to open, then I thought, actually, I don't think I can do this. What am I thinking? How can I cook for 12 people? I'm not a chef. I mean, what was I thinking? Um, I only come from a family of four. Uh, I don't know. Any, I don't know the language. How am I going to say hello to people? So eventually my girlfriend that had been assisting me said, uh, I'm going to open the doors for you or you go off, buy another house and renovate it. I don't have any money to buy another house. She said, then you're going to have to open the doors, aren't you? So she actually just kicked me <laughs> very gently and said, open the doors. And I did. Amazing. And so you've been open and running since then. I have until this year. Until yeah. this year. Yeah. And that's actually, that's a, a good little segue there. Um, so obviously the, the first few years were great. Um, everything kind of ticked along. You found uh, a partner in all of this as well, which is very exciting. I yeah, Pilgrim number 30. <laughs> That's right. very quick work. Well done. <laughs> I didn't want a reputation is what I decided. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, so that that's all an amazing story, and and obviously you went through uh, many years. Uh, do you now speak Spanish? No. <laughs> that's that's actually. I think that's impressive. I mean, it's worse now because I have a Spanish Basque partner, and so it's even worse. But to be perfectly honest, and, and no, this is purely, you know, my fault that I don't speak Spanish. Um, but the, the majority of our pilgrims are English speakers. So we, are, we do have quite a few Italians, but not many Spanish. But um, Fermin, my partner, from April until November when we close again, we speak mainly English in the house. It's very rare that he will be speaking Spanish except to our neighbours, but not within the house. And I suppose that hasn't helped us. But then there's no excuse having been closed for the entire of 2020 where I could have learnt Spanish. Um, slowly, slowly. Poco y poco. <laughs> so 2020. Gosh, what a year for the whole Camino. Um, but for someone whose business relies entirely on tourists, this must have been a really hard year because for large parts of the year, the Camino was just closed and Spain was closed. And then there were rolling closures um, to various regions and various towns along the Camino. So do you want to just talk us through what was 2020 like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really, really tough. Uh, when... When it all began, we were actually in Australia. So at the end of every season, uh, we go back to Australia. I go back to work for some months. So I visit my daughter and my family and friends. I go back to being a florist. So it pays for our trip to be there and it pays for being closed. It's just to, you know, tick us by until we open again. So that's great. Um, 
so we sort of got there and, you know, Australia is such a long way away, as you know, that uh, you don't really hear what's going on in the rest of the world. But, you know, Femin was in touch with his family a lot and they're saying, you know, this COVID and we're like, ah, oh, you know, nothing, you know, nothing to really worry about. And then um, his mum said, you know, there's a, we, we think the town's going to close, but he comes from Pamplona. We think the, and he said, look, this is, this is way beyond what we know. Okay, we're reading it in the newspapers, but if you're not living it, reading it doesn't really have the same impact on anything. So he actually came back um, a week before me. I stayed in Australia a little bit longer and he came back and he got back and he said, and he called me and he said, I don't want to panic you, but I fear you're not going to come, be able to come back if you don't. And I, and I just thought he was taking this whole thing all out of proportion and he was just being dramatic and passionate as the Spanish can be. Um, and I said, well, I'll, I'll just get back when I get back. So I had to get back to the UK. Our car was in the UK, so I had to drive back. So I got back to the UK and and same thing. He said, okay, you need to get in the car and you need to start driving. And obviously once I'd got to the UK as well, I mean, Australia, there wasn't, even when I left, there was like nothing was happening. But suddenly I got to Singapore and uh, people are masked and people are, are wearing these special suits and everybody's temperatures being checked. I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, once I got back to the UK, yeah, I could see that it was, yeah, he wasn't being dramatic actually. The world was, you know, coming down around us pretty much. I stayed in the UK for a couple of days and then, um, and, and it all got the better of me. I thought I'd better start my journey. And so I did. But of course, I couldn't stop. Once I started, I, I didn't have any booking. I tried to book the Eurotunnel overnight in Calais to get to France and I couldn't do it and so I just got up at four o'clock in the morning and I drove there and I got there and they said nobody was allowed to enter um, unless you were French national and uh, and I unless I had a ticket and I couldn't book a ticket needless to say which is why I couldn't book it online so I called for me and I said try and book me a, a ferry in Dover uh, to Calais because I, if I haven't got a booking they're not going to accept me just can you try and do that and so I drove the 20 minutes. And by the time I got there, he said, okay, you've got to book in. So when I got there, um, basically, you know, you see the French police first before you see anybody else because they're the ones that are going to let you into France. And so they sort of held me up and then quarantine stopped me and they wanted to search a car that was full of things and belongings. And so I had it. So I missed the ferry. All that took so much time that I'd missed the ferry. So by the time I got to the lady, she said, uh, do you realise your ferry's left? For me, I hadn't taken him to the time change. Um, anyway, that was the first of the crying. So I I was yeah quite upset. She said, look, I, I'm going to put you onto the next ferry, which goes in an hour. She said, but I, I need to warn you. Um, we don't know when you get to France if they're going to let you into France. She said, we can't tell you that information. She said, you may be just closed there and then when you when you get into, and I said, well, can I get back? And she said, you'll just actually do a turnaround and get back on another ferry. That's what you'll have to do. Okay, no problem. I was going to take the chance. So it was full of trucks and there was five cars. And it was, I mean, I've done that journey so many times, but it was just, it was, it was sad and eerie being on a ferry that was just empty of nothing. And then when I got off in France, no, there was no one there. But when I'd left the ferry terminal, the first roadblock had appeared. Um, I've now, so I've been going about seven hours at this point. Um, I've got a Spanish plated car. I think they didn't stop me because they obviously knew I needed to get through France to get to Spain. I drove nonstop for what well, ended up being 27 hours. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really, really quite horrific. I, I picked up for me in Pamplona. Uh, the town was closed. I arrived at five o'clock in the morning. Um, there was no one there. There was no one on the streets. We went into a garage. He came down behind the cover of doors and his mum called him and said, actually, the police must have seen a car, a car, because I was the only one, and had followed me but had gone into a garage, hadn't seen where I'd gone, doors had closed. So um, at that point, only one person was allowed in the car in Spain. So we were breaking the law completely 
by actually both of us being in the car. We did get home. So yeah, 27 hours after I left the UK, I arrived here. Um, a bit of a mess actually. And on the door was a note from the Spanish government telling me I was closed. <laughs> so the old burgie had been closed. So it was written in Spanish, English and French. Um, and it was for any people. Yeah, just pinned like bang on the door. And it basically uh, was also for the pilgrims. It said uh, all pilgrims to go home. If you're reading this, you must go home. And so that was the beginning. That's, that was the 21st of March. That was the beginning of our season. But then we had no morning. So we went from the Oldberg being closed to our regions being closed to our village being closed. Uh, we've only got 60 people that reside in this village anyway. Most people are over 80. Um, we could go into our garden because it was directly attached to our house, but people have got allotments within our village, which are you know, over the other side of the road. Those people couldn't go to their allotments. I mean, it really had closed down. Um, there had been a few people that had started the Camino um, in, in various places. But of course, all those people that were walking, that's what they were finding. They were arriving where our book is, where we're at the sign on the door saying, closed, go home. Uh, a lot of those people didn't have skills. Anyway, we actually didn't see any pilgrims here for a really long time. I mean, no one came through. Um, the police patrolled the Camino. They were patrolling our road, even in our small village every day. We had a police patrol within the village um, checking that we were doing the right thing. I mean, nobody could have been walking the Camino then. It would have just been so difficult. I know some old burgies did open take, take in people that couldn't get home. And also there are people that live and walk on the Camino every year which is what their choice is but they couldn't continue that either so some old burgies did open and and house those people so the 21st of uh, june was the first time when our regions opened and i reckon on the 22nd we saw the first pilgrim walking through but they were spanish uh coming through we had been given a list of restrictions of, of what could happen. So we, we speak to other Albergi owners um, it, it, within our region, very close to us also in our village. We're friendly with them, but also in other regions where we talk to a lot of those people. And I think between everybody, we were sort of 75% stay, 75 stay closed and 25% opened. Wow. So for us to have opened, we have 12 beds, we would have had to have gone to six beds um we couldn't do a communal meal um and part of what we do is that we love what we do we love being with the pilgrims and we sit with the pilgrims and have dinner every night suddenly we couldn't do that we couldn't hug them i mean i can't tell you how many people walk through our door and just start crying for whatever reason whether it's because we speak in english and they understand us and it well we get a lot it feels like home or that they've just had a bad day and there's a smiling face of somebody. So suddenly they're saying, you can't hug anybody, you can't kiss anybody. One person can come through the door at any one time to check in. If they haven't got a mask, you've got to give them a mask. We've got to have a screen up. We have to buy a mat with antiseptic. Every time somebody uses the bathroom, it must be clean. Uh, all the books have to go away and we have beautiful books on the Camino. People love sitting in the garden reading. There was too many restrictions for us to say, yes, we, we actually can do this the way we want to do it. Um, we knew there was only going to be a small amount of people. Two albergues in the village were going to open. Um, so we actually decided to, to stay closed. And the other thing is we're really close with um, our elderly neighbours. And Fermin was very concerned that if somebody came to us and they were sick and if it was us that spread the the germ on that would be really hard for us um and so that was also a, a very big thing of, of thinking about our community and our neighbors as well and i think there was a lot of other people that also did that it was a really sad place to be i mean this village is alive in summer with the sound of foreign voices and Juan camino and laughing and singing and the clicking of the sticks um our neighbors love speaking or attempting to speak with the pilgrims that want to practice out their Spanish. 
So it was a really sad place to be. Um, eventually in a late July, you know, it was the first we could hear English speakers out there. And I literally was hanging out the balcony window going, hello, hello, please speak to me. Anybody speak to me? I just, I wanted to know what it was like for them because the journey is so incredible, but their journey was so different. Um, and I, I got the perspective of what it was like from people that had done it before. So there was a lot of people that had never walked the Camino. If you've never walked the Camino, it's incredible. I mean, however it was last year or this year, I should say, is still incredible if that's the only journey you know. But if you knew what the Camino was like before, how was it different to these people? What did it feel like to them? And so I, I met the odd few um, that had walked previous Caminos and said it, it felt more like a winter Camino to people um, because there wasn't many people. Um, there wasn't many places open, so you had to you had to be guided by what was open, where you could get to, where you could stay for that reason. Booking in advance, they'd recommended. A lot of people I spoke to hadn't booked in advance. Uh, prices had gone up um, to compensate for you know not having as many beds. All the things that had to be purchased in the meantime as well. Even pilgrims' menus had gone up. Um, but there wasn't community, you know, communal meals or, or the normal things that normally happen. So people would have missed out on those. So people would seem to be traveling like a family because you were all going to the same place at the end of the day. So I think, yeah, it's very much of the perspective. It was more like a winter Camino. So you reflected more on how you felt um, on, on the journey. Yeah. And that that is something that we've heard from people as well is that the, the few people who did uh, managed to get there and then did manage to luckily time themselves in between lockdowns. Um, yeah. But it was just so much more quiet. And we, we've been watching, I'm sure a lot of people around the world have been watching the, um, the official uh, Santiago Cathedral website and the Pilgrim website that shows you how many people arrived at the, at the cathedral each day. And uh, we've had some zero, zero Pilgrim days in the last little while, which is something we've just never seen, we haven't seen pretty much no. ever. It just doesn't happen, no. especially doesn't happen as early as it happened this year. So what you're saying about it being a more wintry Camino, it's it's definitely a quieter, more reflective Camino, but it's still for some people, that's actually what they're looking for. So I hope that they found that if that's what they were looking for this year. Yes, yeah. I mean, there was people, you know, that came and said, you know, we just want to stay and, and sit and talk with you. And and we really just didn't do that. I mean, if we were talking to people, it would be sort of through the, the window that we were, were talking to people. Um, and it was, it was not what we wanted to do and it was not what they wanted to do. But the law here says that's what has to happen. And, and we couldn't break those restrictions um, because for the, for the people that did want to follow those rules, well, of course, that was really, really important. And I knew that we'd probably end up breaking them if, if we'd opened, um, you know, I, how can you not, you know, if, if you're that way inclined? Uh, though, I mean, what we're hearing is though these are going to continue into 2021. Yeah. So it, to next year, it's going to be a holy year. Okay. N now we don't, no one knows what's going to happen when we talk about it so often. Um, yes. People will come for sure. Uh, are we going to be overcrowded? Like they say, it's going to be doubtful. Uh, they say our, whatever our new normal will be, will be from May. But who knows? I mean, we so the Camino could still be closed right up until May. Uh, our borders and regions have been open, though they're closing bit by bit, as, as they said, okay, from the 23rd of December to the 6th of January. But already some of those places have opted not to do that. Um, and then they say from the 6th of January, that's it then until May, possibly. That's what they say. That Hopefully that's just something that doesn't happen. But if it does, it's, they're doing it for a reason. It's because it's not under control and they, you know, they want to contain whatever they're going to contain. 
but you know when the old bergs open i mean we have to open next year um however we look at it we cannot survive another year of being closed yeah. mentally as well as uh, monetary wise more than anything yeah. else we we need to give we need to feed our souls there's been lots of tears trust me there's been lots of yeah i've had lots of tears along the way and um it's been really really hard you know and not being able to plan anything has been hard and and talking to pilgrims you know on online you know people message are you open can we stay it's just like no but you know knock at the door if we're home you know please say hello but that was about the warmest welcome we could give people. I mean, if people needed information, I was still able to tell them where they could go to and, and offer them advice, but there wasn't enough people out there um, for that anyway. So yeah, it, it's, 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 it's a really, really sad year, but next year onwards and upwards. Absolutely, next year. And so speaking of next year, we do have kind of an indication from the Spanish government that, as you said, we're, we're looking at sort of being pretty close for the beginning, but we're, the Camino is usually very quiet for the first few months of the year anyway. Most places are usually closed. Now the, now everyone's wearing masks and we've been used to wearing them the entire year. I suppose we, we, we would spray boots, everything goes in plastic bags, which we were doing anyway beforehand. Um, and the sprays, I mean, the hand gels, I think we're all used to now. Um, I don't have to clean the bathroom after every single person goes there and uses it, but I need all the things there for people to clean before or after that they want to. I think it's a natural thing that people are now doing themselves. Um, the disposable sheets, well, they're, they're going to now be in. Everybody will have them. So, um, I mean, that's a lot of waste, really. I mean, yeah. Would people be able to bring their own sheets if they didn't want to use disposable ones? Absolutely. I mean, I, at the end of the day, if you put your own shit under it, we actually use um, a steam cleaner. So we use um, like a steamer with water, which we've had for a few years, which we clean everything with anyway. So heat does kill the virus, as we know. So where we, we for us in terms of that, I mean, the cleaning is not going to be so different because we use that every day anyway. We did that, we steamed all the beds anyway, every day. So we'll continue the days. And now we've got eight beds, so it's gonna be a little bit less. Um, we can probably configure two tables because we should be able to go back to do um, communal food, uh, food, you know, but we possibly won't be able to sit with people. Mm -hmm. um, all the kitchens were closed. Like you couldn't cook in the kitchens last year in the municipal Alberghis. Is that going to change next year? No one can tell us that information yet. Yeah. So I think, you know, at some point, March, April, when they're preparing for the Camino to open again and being particularly uh, looking at that it could be the holy year and we could have a lot of people coming through here. Are they going to give us a new list of things that we have to do, things that we have to abide by? Well, it would be nice if we had some more information. Yeah. So I think it's, a, it's probably pretty much a matter of waiting and seeing what they say. Well, we're all keeping our fingers crossed that those uh, regulations are going to come out nice and clear and that they're going to be as timely as possible. I think we're also all keeping our fingers crossed for um, whatever vaccines are starting to come up because as we get more people who are immune to the virus through vaccines or, or whatever other methods, um, obviously there'll be less transmission and everything starts to get safer. So I know that the UK have started rolling out the vaccines the EU has just approved um, two of the vaccines, I believe. Um, don't hold me to that one. <laughs> um, so those are going to start rolling out um, in the next couple of weeks across Europe. So hopefully, fingers crossed, as long as we can bide our time and be patient through the next few months to see how these, uh, these new things sort of pan out um, and we all look after each other, then hopefully, we'll start seeing some really positive changes as we come into sort of the middle of 2021. Um, and fingers crossed, we'll be able to have loads of people sitting around tables and swapping Camino stories in just a few months. 
Um, that is obviously the dream, especially with a holy year. There's going to be, um, as usual, probably a whole bunch more people coming from all around the world. Um, and we cannot wait to welcome them to the Camino and to help them along on their wonderful journeys. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just to open the door, that when that first pilgrim works, walks through the door in 2021, there's no hope of me not crying when that person arrives. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we share so many stories at the table um, and I just think the stories that we're going to get next year of people's journeys of this year of not necessarily nothing to do with the Camino but their journey that has put them through life. And a lot of, you know, I do speak to a lot of people in the Camino community and they're all saying that we are going to be busier because people are reflecting on what has happened in the last year um, and they're going to want to walk the Camino while they figure all of those extra things out. So, you know, it could be even more people coming through. Um, um, you know, we're going to tell stories of what the Camino was before. I can't believe that that could actually happen as well. You know, when we sit at the table and we exchange our names and where we come from and then everybody can say a little something. I mean, we hear the most incredible stories and I think we're just going to get even more of them. Um, we're all keeping our fingers crossed that in the next few months things are going to go on to some level of normality and uh, and hopefully we're going to see all of that that warmth and love come back to the Camino. Um, so I guess I just want to say thank you so so much for for joining me. Thank you for all of your wonderful answers and your wonderful stories. Um, I plan to speak to you again next year and we'll have a chat about your uh, your romantic Camino. <laughs> um, I look forward so, to sharing that with you, Caitlin. <laughs> absolutely. So um, just for, for the people watching, thank you so much for joining us and do keep an eye open for another wonderful story from Susie in the new year. Um, we hope that you all do manage to uh, have a wonderful holiday, a wonderful Christmas time, and uh, we'll hopefully see you all on the Camino next year. Thank you.